This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You're as cold as ice. You're willing to sacrifice our love. Scott Radley Show, 900 CHML. No question, some people are using that line, those lines about Doug Ford, the incoming premier of this province, cold as ice. Nonetheless, even before he is sworn into office, today he announced that he was doing something big. I think it's reasonably big. I think it's a big move. He's implementing a hiring freeze across the entire provincial public service, except in areas of emergency services if you need to fill spots there. But otherwise, the government, if someone leaves, if someone retires, if someone goes off to another job, we're not replacing them. We're not filling spots. It is a hiring freeze across this province. He's also banning purchasing of food and drinks for uh, politicians in their various meetings. That's a little bit, or maybe a lot smaller potatoes, pardon the pun, and reducing travel to out-of-province events. This is the beginning of seemingly trying to find those efficiencies that he kept talking about during the election. So the question is, is this a good first step? Does this Is this a first step that sends the right kind of message? Brad Clark is a former MPP. He's a former city councillor as well. He is now the principal at Maple Leaf Strategies. He joins me now. Brad, how are you tonight? I'm doing fine. How about yourself, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. Happy Father's Day. Thank you very much. And you as well. Oh, thank you. Uh, So, is this, when you look at this, and everyone has different opinions on Brad Clark, but in a general, from a general position, is this a a good, an acceptable, a palatable first step for most people when they see an incoming premier? I think it's a reasonable first step until he actually has ministers in the offices. Uh, He's directed the, the, the deputy ministers, in essence, to have a hiring freeze, except for, as you indicated, essential services, fire, police, um, correctional services, health, etc. Now, the question would be, though, is if you are going to be finding, whether it's $6 billion or I suspect he's going to have to find more than that, in efficiencies, is this the kind of thing that you could implement for a four-year plan and say, we are simply not going to be hiring anybody over the next four years. Is, is this something that would be feasible? I don't know if it would be feasible. Um, I, I suspect that what he's going to do is direct the ministers. Each minister that he appoints will get a letter um, telling them what their mandate is, and he's likely directing, he will likely direct them to look for efficiencies in their ministries. Um, I'm not sure whether or not a hiring freeze over four years is, is really pragmatic, given that there are many um, civil servants who are coming up for retirement. Right, so you could have a, an, an exodus of people, not necessarily for any political reason, just for age reason, and suddenly now you're down 1,000 or 2,000 people in the civil service. I can tell you in the past, previous premiers who have implemented hiring freezes um, meant for new FTEs, not replacing someone who has retired. So there may be language down the road that clarifies that, but at the present time, he's sending a pretty clear message that um, there's a hiring freeze in place. Now we do, though, have, and I don't know what the exact number is. I don't know if anyone knows what the, honestly what the exact number is. Uh, tens of thousands of provincial public employees. 
let's say that 2,000 or 3,000 of those were to leave over the course of four years. Let's say, let's just play devil's advocate here. He keeps this in as a four-year plan. We're not going to replace anybody except in emergency services where lives are at risk. If we have, let's say, 30, I think the number that I saw today was about 34,000, 35,000 public service workers. If 2,000 of those or 3,000 of those left, how much impact would that truly have on the province? How much would we see that on a day-to-day basis? How much would the frontline civilian who wants to go up to the desk and get support for something, how it would impact them or yeah, how it would yeah. impact the government? Uh, no, the, the people. How much would we see it as a people? Well, if he ma- maintains that the essential services are, are sacrosanct, they're the, the sacred cow that will not be touched, I'm not sure the, the, the average citizen would see an impact or a loss in services. Uh, you're correct, it's about 35,000 um, um, civil servants working for the province of Ontario. Uh, and, and again, it really depends on each ministry. Each ministry has different roles and different functions, and some of them are really significantly important, and others may have a less of a priority with the new government. We won't know until the new cabinet is in. The reason I ask the question is because uh, you now work in private industry. You've worked in private and public in both sectors. Uh, Many people listening to this will be public. Many people will be private. But those who are in the private sector, Brad, have gone through this already. Most people have seen that they've had to do more. They still get paid the same, but they've had to do more for that money. And I think a lot of people who work in the private sector say, what would be the harm in asking the public sector people to do a little more for the same amount of money just the way we have? You're correct. I mean, there has been a significant push right across the private sector, given the economy, to have the employees doing more, uh, and as a result, saving a company uh, money. So there is an expectation from, from people who work in the private sector, I've already gone through this. Let the government go through this, too. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Brad Clark about this, a Brad Clark, former MPP, former city councillor, and a man, when we were asking people a week ago about who should fill Donna Skelly's seat on city council, a man whose name came up many times as a very popular choice. I don't know if that's on your uh, bucket list of things to do again, is to be back on city council. I'll pass on the Ward 7 seat, (laughs) but I... Sincerely appreciate all the kind thoughts. <laughs> all right. Well, at least they know they can scratch you off the list for now anyway. Uh, back to this for a second, though, because just before the break, we were talking about the idea of asking public service workers to do a little more for the same amount of money as people in the public in the private sector have been doing for years and years now. Is it, you've been in both, is it an unfair categorization to say that, to suggest that they haven't been doing? Because certainly the public sector has not cut back at the speed that private sector has, but have they, have they basically had an easier ride than private sector in your mind? Each ministry is a little bit different, so it's, it's unfair to characterize all of the ministries as having themselves of really avoiding this, this particular issue. Um, I can tell you that many civil servants that I've spoken to, that they have accepted additional responsibilities and with not uh, an increase in pay. So they are doing more with less, um, but are all the ministries doing that? I can't tell you that. Would I be being too cynical, uh, and again, speaking to a man who's been at Queen's Park and worked as an MPP, would I be too cynical 
if I suggested that if Doug Ford was to make that proposal, that people are going to do more for less or for the same amount of money, that some public servants, and more specifically some of their unions, would make sure that impacted on levels of service to the public? It, it really depends on how significant. I think what you would find is that Smokey Robinson, who's the head of the QP, which really deals with the public service, uh, sorry, OPSA, which deals with the public service in the province, uh, would strongly suggest that um, they be paid for the work that they're doing. Um, so would it create labor unrest? I suspect that it would create some grievances that the government would have to deal with. I don't know how significant, because again, we're speculating on, on how much those cuts may or may not be. Uh, yeah, and by the way, that, um, just so you know, just so people aren't confused, that's Smokey Thompson, or Smokey Thomas, Smokey, Ro- Smokey, Smokey Robinson. Robinson. I wish Smokey <laughs> Robinson was running our public service. That would be great. Thank you. That would be, that would be great. I, I wish that was the case. We'd have great music at all times in every public facility. Um, by the way, you, you mentioned Smokey Thomas. He did say, here's a quote from him today, whatever this man, speaking of Doug Ford, whatever this man does will affect at least some of our members everywhere, and depending on the, the decision could affect a lot of them. Um, I, 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 I may not be quite as generous as you. I tend to think that the unions especially would give guidance to the public service unions that if there was to be a hiring freeze as a policy that we would be sure to be feeling it, that that would be a, a point of order that we would be knowing in this province that this was happening, they'd make sure of that. Anyway. In the past, they have monitored the situation and, and quickly become, become public if they see that those re- the refusals to hire new people is actually resulting in a cut in service. Uh, the other stuff that, uh, that Doug Ford proposed today, he, uh, first of all, he said that there would be no more food and drinks at council, or not council, at uh, political meetings, at board meetings and things like that. Is that a significant cost cut? Could it be a significant cost cut, or is that more token and more just appearance? Uh, it is a cost cut. Um, I can recall when I was minister, I only ever offered coffee or water. I, I didn't provide lunches or dinners for meetings, um, and, and I th- thought that was the prudent way of dealing with the taxpayers' money. So I think ministers could do that very easily. Um, I don't know how much that has become the norm at the province of Ontario. When I was there, it wasn't really the norm. Let me just broaden that for a second, because this is an issue that we've dealt with in the city of Hamilton as well. Uh, Not that long ago, it came up, I believe it was Councillor Skelly who had raised this uh, maybe a year ago. Is there a reason why this couldn't be a policy across the board, that politicians can buy their own coffee and buy their own water like everybody else does? Political will. There's no reason why it couldn't be very clear you're getting paid by the taxpayers. So if you want a snack, you want lunch, you want a coffee, you pay for it. Now, the other thing that was mentioned today, and there may have been others, but I didn't see them. But the other thing that was mentioned was the banning or cutting back on travel outside the province. How much travel is there generally from politicians and their staff outside? I know there's a lot in the province. How much is there generally outside the province? Again, is this a big deal? Uh, it, it very much could be, and it's discretionary. Um, it's up to the ministers to decide whether or not they're going to a conference outside of the province or not. Uh, with the advent of social media and the Internet, people really don't need to travel far afield for conferences. They can get all of that information online and save the taxpayers a lot of money. But it's so much more fun to go. 
I understand that is, <laughs> that is the case. However, it's not necessary. <laughs> I, this is, I mean, these are obviously beginner steps, first steps that we haven't even had a government sworn in yet. Um, if this is the kind of thing, and we only have a few seconds here, but if this is the kind of thing that Doug Ford is going to start doing, is this something that he's going to, you're going to see huge blowback? Or do you think overall people will say, well, I can live with this kind of thing? I think most people can live with this type of, of statement and action. Uh, and I think it just sends a very clear signal that he's expecting the taxpayers to be respected by all ministries and all civil civil servants. That is Brad Clark, who will not be taking over Donna Skelly's seat in Ward 7 until the election. Oh, we got lots more to talk about about the election. I never even got to some of the municipal stuff I wanted to, so we'll have you back real soon. But uh, appreciate the time tonight. No problem. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. How should we be naming... Our new schools, when one is built, how should we, or maybe more accurately, lately anyway, after whom should we be naming new schools? Now, you know, probably that one is under construction, just about to be finished, or soon anyway, right across the street from Tim Horton's Field, where Scott Park High School used to be. And some time ago, the school board asked for public input and got a number of recommendations the three, as I understand, that led the way were Bernie Custis School, Scott Park, again, and Nikola Tesla. Now, an advisory panel sat down and went over this and came up with their own ideas, decided they didn't want to go with those. The head of the panel said it was, the panel was, quote, very committed to considering an indigenous name. And then the proposed name was that of Shannon Kustachin, or Shannon Kustachin Secondary School. Now, she is a young indigenous girl who was killed in a car accident in 2010 after fighting to get a school in her area in Attawapiskat in Northern Ontario. Ward 3 School Board Trustee Larry Patterson was on that committee and put forward the motion to consider that name. He joins us now. Larry, thanks for doing this tonight. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, Tell me, first of all, as we get into this, tell me about Shannon Kustachin, because I don't think many people are going to know her story. Yeah, and I was among that uh, group before we started this naming committee, so... She was a, uh, a Cree youth up in, as you said, Attawapiskat, who uh, was fighting for uh, um, safe schools. And in her community, they uh, they were housed in um, portables for a very long time. It had been a great number of years be- before they had a, a school, which they do finally have now. Um, so that's something she advocated for. She went all the way to Parliament Hill to uh, to fight this cause and didn't receive a great response in that first try, but kept on fighting for this this issue, and then in 2014, finally, um, a few years after she had passed, the uh, the the uh, the dream came true for the Attawapiskat community. I think that most people uh, who are open to Indigenous issues, who are sympathetic, whatever, could, could certainly see that story and say that that is a terrific story, and she's a terrific example. The flip side, Larry, and I'm sure you've heard this already, is shouldn't we be naming schools in the city of Hamilton after people who have some kind of connection to the city of Hamilton? Yeah, and that's a fair response. I mean, I took a long time and I looked at all the names of our schools and specifically, um, and I did some research, and specifically the schools that were named after people. And I think I found about nine of our schools that weren't named after anybody of local significance, but uh, looking at what they mean to the broader uh, either Canada or Ontario, um, you know, I think it certainly opens your mind to the possibilities. And, you know, the, the, just because a person isn't from here or maybe didn't do something within our city specifically, how they inspire the youth in, in our city. And I, 
you know, I also was a big, you know, I'm a big Ticat fan. And when I read uh, Bernie Custis's name in there and his history, and, um, you know, I was certainly uh, attracted to that name as, as something to, to use as, as, you know, a possibility for the school. But then somebody started talking about uh, Shannon. Uh, we, we all had an opportunity to read the uh, a short bio on, on a lot of the uh, names that were suggested. But when they started reading her, um, her history, it's something kind of, in all of us, you know, when we looked at something, what we wanted to get out of this, and um, you, know, you think of what Shannon did as an inspiration to all youth from all different backgrounds, and that's kind of what we were looking for. You know, I think of some of the um, rallies I've been to this year that you know have been student-led. Specifically, I went to one up in Westmount where they were, you know, fighting the uh, um, standardized testing. And whether or not we agree on some of these causes or not, we, I know as a board that we respect our student voice. We, we, we take great pride in that and, and, and value it very much. And uh, that's what Shannon inspires. That's what she did. She, she fought for something she believed in. She had to go all the way to, you know, um, Parliament Hill to, to fight this. And, and, you know, that's something we want to, that's a message we want to send to our kids of how important their voice is and how much change that can, uh, you know, it can create in our community. I, I know. Sorry, Larry, I know that... Oh, sorry. No, no, I, and I know that um, from reading a story about this in the paper already today, that this has been an issue of... I don't know what the what's the right word here. I, I don't. It doesn't sound like there was uh, there were knives pulled out on the <laughs> at the trustee meeting, but there was some difference of opinion on this. And one of the one of the issues was that uh, the public had been asked for input on this, and then the names that the public had put forward were the ones that were put aside in favor of this. Is there a risk? of doing that? Is there a risk of asking the public and then not taking the public's point of view that it, it, it doesn't lead the lead the public to want to participate again or doesn't lead them to believe this is really sort of their choice or their school? You know, I have a, you know, a great deal of respect both for the democratic process and, and my colleagues. I think a lot of them, I've learned a lot from them these past years and I understand their questions. But if we look at the, the policy or, or the procedures related to the naming committee, uh, first of all, there's really no mention on there the importance of how many people voted for a certain name or, or you know, also what we're doing is we're reaching out back to students. That's also not something that's part of the, the, the naming committee process, which, you know, going forward in the future, I, I would see this as a valuable um, step to take after the naming committee has, has put forth their suggestion to take it to students because um, they're, the, you know, they're the ones that would be going to the school, so their voice is important. Um, but I... This naming committee looked at all the names. There were 160 names, and we looked at them. You know, we went through the list multiple times, and we talked about which names we wanted to remove and why, and which ones we wanted to keep and why. And no disrespect to any of the names that were on top of the list, but they didn't see the how many votes as valuable as what the name meant to the committee and what they felt the name would mean to the community. Knowing that that voting process, anybody could go in and just do. 400 votes for, for one name all by themselves, you know, the way that that anonymous survey is. So not saying that it was rigged by any means, but just saying that um, the community you know, spent a lot of time. We, we spent uh, two meetings, which this usually only takes one meeting, and, and about a total of five and a half hours to make this decision. So it wasn't something that they, they came across lately. Now, Larry, we have about 30 seconds here, uh, but you, you've gone, you say you went through five and a half hours. You didn't end up with a vote that passed this. So what is the step now? Where does this go now? So this will go back to students. That's what trustees ask in, in the fall. So the trustees or students at Sir John A. and Delta 
when they'll look at the, the names that we suggested and they'll put some of those names back on the list and they will deliberate and, and make a suggestion to board. And would that likely be the one that would be passed then if the students now are the, are they sort of the deciding vote? Um, I think with any, any kind of community consultation, the trustees obviously have the, the, the last um, say, but uh, you know, I know I put that name forward because I have a great um, respect for that, that committee and the work they did. And that's, you know, the name that was the most popular out of the two that went to board. So, It is uh, it is an interesting one for sure, just because of the elements at play here. Uh, Larry Pattison, Ward 3 trustee, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you again, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner-operator, purveyor of the Dundas Real McCoys during the hockey season. Otherwise owner-operator, purveyor of ComChoice Realty, and um, a man who is uh, sporting a lovely Muskoka shirt today, probably wishing you were there. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Thank you. What a hot day. You well, like the heat, well, eh? I love the heat. I hate it. Even yesterday. We I'm oversized, so the well, heat isn't good for me. My son took me to the Blue Jays game yesterday, and we moved around to a few different places. Went to the flight deck for a little, you know, that that yep. standing zone in the back. That was that's a good place to watch a game. This is the first Jays game that I've been to since Game Five of the 2015 Texas series, the Bautista home run game. Yeah, this is the bat first flip. The bat flip game. This is the first game I've been to live. And as we're walking in, I said, I, I sincerely hope this is going to be at least as exciting and as intense as that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. You are ever game, the optimist, game, aren't you? Game Holy 65 crap. in a lost season. Yeah, let's hope that this is as good as that game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talking about a, ripping it apart. It was, it was a good game. Yesterday was a good game. But yes, it was very hot. It was very, And they kept the dome closed until right before the game started to try and prevent it from turning into just melting the seats in the grass. But I'm no heating and air conditioning expert, <laughs> but I'm kind of thinking when you open up that lid... The cold air is gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it didn't, didn't hold in. Yeah. Didn't hold in, and it was hot. But, yeah, we went to the flight deck for a while, but then we, we went and improved. We had decent seats to begin with, pretty good seats, actually, and then we went right down by the third baseline, about four rows because they were empty. But that was sitting right in the sun, and you could actually feel the skin on the back of your legs <laughs> sizzling on the plastic chairs. That was, um, yeah, that was, uh, it was good, though. A lot of fun. Uh, you know, and that's an amazing thing too, is that going down there when the building is close to full and it was, they had 36,000, even when the season is lost, which it really is, they're 15 games out right now. Even if it doesn't matter, you can still have a good time. I use that analogy uh, when we were talking about the Bulldogs and the great crowds they had in the playoffs and you complain about buildings and, and the dome is, um, seemingly quite outdated now and doesn't even feel like it was built for baseball. You know, I was in the old Tiger Stadium and you kind of hang. It was kind of like being in Buffalo and you, I think they were oranges uh, back in the odd. You kind of think they've just hooked you onto the side of the wall. So the dome isn't perfect. Um, Cops isn't perfect for um, for an OHL club. But when you fill them with people, there's still pretty good atmosphere and a Pretty good buildings. You can still get a pretty good buzz and enjoy yourself. You no, know, no. It was as I say. It was you put thirty six thousand people in there, and it holds forty seven, yeah, something like that. But you put thirty six thousand in there, and it's uh, it's just fine. And I I would bet you that of the thirty five thirty six thousand, I bet you thirty two thousand were fathers with their 
with their kids, Ad- adult and well, that's, kids, that's, which was great. That's 64,000, but... No, I'm saying the combined. Oh, I see. Sorry. Yeah. My <laughs> math is not great, but it's not that bad. <laughs> uh, you know what else was happening on the weekend, though? One of what may be one of the most interesting, I think, things that we've seen in sports in a while. And it, it's so bizarre to say that because it's a little tiny thing, but it's what it signifies. Did, were you watching any of the U.S. Open? Phil Mickelson. Phil Mickelson. Did you see that? Saw the replay. So for those who for those who saw it, they know exactly what I'm talking about. For those who read about it, they know what I'm talking about. For those who didn't see it, Shinnecock, which is where the course was, where the U.S. Open was being played, uh, is a hard course to begin with. But the U.S. Golf Association set up this golf course so that it was basically impossible. It was it was a course that was it was turning the best players in the world into chumps. And somebody described it as when you would try to hit onto the green, you were trying to land a golf ball on a beach ball. It was round and bumpy, and the balls were just going everywhere. You couldn't hold the green. I think they had just scooted all the all the goats off the week before. And it was they, just then they rolled the greens with one of those big road gro- uh, rollers, right? So yeah. it was like glass. Well, the the they use what's called a stimp meter, yeah, which tests the speed of. The green. And I think, I don't know what the number, I don't know what the typical number is of what a fast green is on the stimp meter, but whatever it was, it was about four times that fast for this thing. You're right. It was like putting on glass. You just couldn't control it. Anyway, the, the course, I mean, it basically, it was almost unfair. And so Phil Mickelson hits onto the green, overshoots the hole and the ball starts to roll. And he, and it wasn't like a horrendous putt overshoots the hole by a little bit and all of a sudden the ball starts to pick up speed and pick up speed and well then Phil starts to pick up speed. Phil's not a petite man. Phil starts running after his ball and before it stops as it's going down the hill, he does the mini golf thing that you've all done when you've stick handle around the hole and he hits it back. Which is I don't know, it's not the ultimate no no Don in golf, but it's it's up there. It's a it's a severe breach of golf rules and etiquette. Fair enough? Agreed. And uh, sh- shockingly to me, because I'd never seen anyone do it before, shockingly, it's only a two-stroke penalty. The ball may have rolled back to the 150 marker. It, uh, the, the way it was, like... He probably said, well, he sent a message, but he said, if I don't do this, I can take the two, because it may be three. Oh, easily. Easily. And so from Phil Mickelson's perspective, there were two things going on here. One is that you would say... It was a smart move within the rules as written because of that very thing. If you do this, you take a two-stroke penalty, but you very easily could have three or four after this. So from within the, if you know what the rule is, sure, I'll take the two. But I think most people interpreted it as a golf's equivalent of an extended middle finger to the U.S. Golf Association for the course they'd set up. I would guess... Because he, he won't disrespect the game. He's too classy of a guy to... Well, he's got too much to lose. Yep. He's got too much to lose if he's seen as being a jerk. And I don't think anybody saw him as a jerk. And I think if he'd have really had his choice, rather than tapping the ball so it didn't roll off, I think I know where he'd like to put the ball. And I don't... It, and it wasn't the cup. <laughs> yeah. But you wouldn't have been able to see it when he was done. And that's really what he did, the middle finger or... Shoving it up the uh, USGA's uh, spot. Sphincter. Yeah. No. I, I do you. Did you have a problem with him doing that though? No. I think you need more emotion out of golf golfers. I remember John Daly 
who used to get perennially invited back because he won it, um, scored an eight or a nine on one of the holes. And afterwards, he said, this course is unfair. They've set it up poorly, and it's an unfair test of golf. And he was creamed, but he doesn't have the cachet and the respect. But all he did is say what he thought. I mean, it was an unfair test. I think the winner was plus two that year. These guys are the best in the world. They should be able to score under par. Par shouldn't win a golf tournament. Well, and anybody on the course, any of the guys who complains about how hard the course is, people are going to say, wah, wah, wah. Right? You're just being a suck. You're, you're, you're whining because it's hard and you want to be able to play easy. You know what? It's, it, they're whining if they shoot an 81 and there's a bunch of 64s out there. But when over half of the field, that the last half of the field that finished, nobody was par or under par, it's kind of a group middle finger thing. Right, they're none of them are happy about it. Late last week, Bob O'Neill was on here. We were chatting briefly about it after round one, and I asked him, and I'll ask you the same question: Do you like watching golf when it's this kind of setup? Would you rather watch the best players in the world be tested and be two or three over par and not be able to make the shots, or tear a course apart and finish seventeen under on a round? On the tournament, around whatever. Whatever. Do do you want to see, do you want to see them destroy a course by just ripping it apart and scoring low? Or do you want to see them scuffing and having to be like you and me on a typical course? Well, I don't want them to look like me and you. I mean, you want to watch the best guys do what's best. And if the course is set up and it's unfair and it's an unfair challenge, then I don't like that. I mean, I don't think you need to be 18 or 21 under to win a tournament, but I don't think there's anything wrong with the the best guy on those four rounds being 10 under. Like, I think that's probably still a pretty good test of golf. I You know, there are some courses where they eat it up, and then, you know, they've made those courses longer if they're perennial uh, hosts. But I, I have no interest in seeing those guys look like me. I, yeah, I'm with you. I would much, I would rather see the other end. And I remember when the Canadian Open first came to the Hamilton Golf and Country Club back in 2003, and there was great concern that it was going to be just chewed up, which would be a, seen as insulting to the course, that it's too easy. And I can't remember what the exact number was, but maybe it was six or seven under was the final, maybe eight under. I mean, it wasn't a... They didn't need it up. They didn't need it up. And I think it was a little lower the last time. Uh, Scott Piercy won it the last time, but I, nonetheless, I, I don't... I would rather see the guys playing golf in a way that when I am done watching, I go, wow, that was amazing, rather than, ugh. I don't like to see the greens the way they were Saturday and Friday, Saturday, Sunday at the U.S. Open, but I don't mind if they grow the rough up a bit, and the Canadian Open Ancaster do that. No, but that's fair. So that's a challenge, but I don't think the greens, I don't think you should be punished by the greens because they're unfair. And that's what happened at the U.S. Open. The difference is that the rough, part of your strategy is not to be in the rough. That's right. and But you, you have to be on the greens. Correct. Yeah. So, so so it's fine to grow the rough. You can grow the rough six feet long. Because that's a penalty. That's a penalty. So if you can't advance it to the green because you screw up your drive, well, then you screwed up your drive. Fair and enough. don't screw up the next one. But if you're starting to drop balls near the cup, or where you should on, on, on a green. 45 yards away. And they roll down, you're going, I'm a 9-iron back. How does this work? Yeah. yeah. That's no. not the golfer's fault. I'm with you. Now, and they can't said, put spin on it because it'll spin back to the 150 marker. So the U.S. 
GA who didn't call me, but if they listen here, they'll pay, they'll learn a little bit. But they they got to quit screwing the greens up and, and toughen it up in other ways. That said, and as much as you and I seem to agree on the fact that neither of us was particularly bent out of shape about Phil Mickelson's action. That said, should he have been disqualified? Because there's a lot of people who say that is such an egregious breach of the rules of golf. Outside, the, the rule is two strokes, but the spirit of the rule is, you know, this is one of those things like yelling at another guy when he's about to tee off or whatever else. There are certain things you cannot do without really messing with the basic tenets of how golf is played, and that's one of them. Would you have disqualified Phil Mickelson? No, of course not. See, I would have. I would, have, I would have said, I understand completely why he did it, but I would have disqualified him. Well, if, if it's disqualification, why is there a two po- two-stroke penalty? I mean, if you should be disqualified, why is it a two-stroke penalty? And if it weren't Phil Mickelson? If it, if were, it wasn't Phil Mickelson, he definitely would have been disqualified. I don't think we'd even be talking about it. Well, the person would have been gone. The person would have been gone. There's See, not I, even a question. I think the people that are calling him out and say he should have been disqualified are people that don't like Phil Mickelson and probably aren't fans, the same as if Donald Trump eliminated all personal income tax, people will complain about it. No, I... I Those I, complainers are going to complain about it no matter, and it's probably more personal than practical. There are six or seven guys on that tour that could probably do almost anything. They could pull a crossbow out of their golf bag and shoot another caddy in the head and not get disqualified. Tiger Woods isn't going anywhere. Phil Mickelson isn't going anywhere. Dustin Johnson is not going to be disqualified. Jordan Spieth, Rory McIlroy, the guys who are at the very top in the not only the standings but the fame department, they're not going anywhere. But if it was Mackenzie Hughes, Hamilton Dundas guy who was who was playing there, who has won a tournament, he certainly had great success. He's got his PGA Tour card, but is not in that same echelon. I'm betting you Mackenzie Hughes would have been disqualified. They would have said, no, thank you. This is the U.S. Open. This is not Don's front nine. Well, what they could do is say, because of what you did, you're not welcome back next year. Yeah, but it, yeah. yeah they're not think, doing that to Phil Mickelson. They're not either. doing that to Phil Mickelson. Here's, uh, here's going to be a great story when Mac is uh, retired, Hughes, and speaks at events. He's going to be able to say at the 2018 U.S. Open after the first two days, he was one shot behind Tiger Woods. Sadly, Tiger Woods was plus 10. Well, that's, uh, I have, I often think that golf's rules are, golf's rules in many cases, and I like tradition. I really do like tradition in sports. Sometimes though, I think that golf's rules were written by men with clenched back ends because it's, it's very tight and it's very well, there's specific eight, and it's there's 18 holes because there's there was 18 shots of scotch in a bottle in the old days. Is that what it came from? Yeah. Well, one of the theories I've heard, and, the, and if that's the case, that may tell you where some of the rules came from. It could be, but I mean, it, it's one of those things that it's it's the rules are very particular in the rules, but and the tradition is very tight and all the rest of that stuff. But I'm I was trying to put in I was trying to put it into a different to put it in a different sport of what you could have done that would have been similar to that. And, you know, I, I was kind of thinking, okay, in baseball, for example, if, if let's say the play is over, 
you've beaten out a uh, you you hit it's an infield hit you've beaten out a hit at first base you're safe at first but the ball is now lying near first base and you pick it up and throw it as far as you can and heave it into the outfield seats for whatever reason chances are an umpire is going to toss you out of the game for that for it's because it's considered poor sportsmanship it's breaking the rules of sportsmanship i'm trying to i don't know what example i could use in hockey you know you know what the closest example might be in hockey that i could think of off the top of my head is when um Daniel Alfredson. Remember a few years ago, Matt Sundin broke his stick and Alfredson picked it up and pretended to throw it in the stands. If he had thrown it into the stands, he might have got tossed out of the game for that. So it's a gross misconduct. He would have had to have. But it's, again, it, it breaches the etiquette in a major way of the particular sport. It's not just because it's a penalty. There is a penalty well, for it. In, in, in hockey, for what Alfredson would have done, it's a gross misconduct. The gross misconduct, by definition, is making a travesty of the game. And that's how... And if that's what Phil Nicholson... If people think he made a travesty of the game, and he probably did make a travesty of the game. I cut him some slack as to why he did. I no, that's and that's that's the I problem. Agree. So I'm judge and jury. I'm saying I wouldn't throw him out because I think he was just trying to. You know why else? And I think you're exactly right. And you know why else? Because if they had thrown him out, all the his press conference and everything following that would have been exactly what you just said. Well, why did he do this? And all the criticism because he was eighteen over. But all the criticism then falls on the U.S. Golf Association for creating a golf course that was unfair to the players, and suddenly they're the ones on the hot seat. And so, if we just let this go and let it slide, Phil Mickelson is going to stand there and take some abuse like he did. Yep. And people may criticize the course, but if we kick him out, we become the bad guys. And and he didn't rip the course after, like he didn't. He would have if he got kicked out. I bet. Yep, but he probably said, now may not be the time to say, I did it because this thing sucks. You think behind the scenes they had a little conversation? Of course they did. And and not before he did that. I'm sure they did it Saturday, saying, this is BS. What are you doing? I bet they heard it from a lot of players. Sure they did. Well, they hear it from their managers. They hear it from somebody yeah. that this is stupid. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Uh, Don Robertson is in studio, as he is every Monday at this time. And Don, you're a baseball guy. You're a baseball fan. We were chatting about the Jays at the start. Uh, the Jays are heading towards uh, early oblivion this year and a, probably a dismantling of their team. After they sweep a series. After they sweep a series against a really good Washington Nationals team. Who Washington I, Generals. I, you know what? I, I was sending out a tweet well, from the game. And I, before I hit th- send, thankfully, I originally had started typing generals and I corrected myself and started typing senators and then <laughs> caught a second, a third time and went, oh wait, it's the nationals. I know this team. I'm familiar with this team. Anyway, there is a lot of talk around baseball right now because attendance is dropping, viewership is down and the big comment, the big belief about part of why baseball is seeing this happening right now is because strikeouts have become such an integral, such a huge part of the game. Apparently a decade ago, it was roughly, a little more than a decade ago, it was roughly 11 strikeouts a game on average for both teams combined. Now you're up to 17 on average. Most, almost every pitch now, it's like 90% of something does not lead to a ball being put into play. It's a lot of, and I love baseball, but it's a lot more now of standing around watching. 
In fact, yesterday at the Blue Jay game, I was watching the outfielders at times because we were standing in the flight deck. And you know what? They stood around. Picking dandelions? Well, I mean, they're not exactly six-year-old little leaguers. I mean, they are getting paid a lot of money. They're not exactly picking dandelions. But no, but they don't have a lot to do because there's so many strikeouts. There's so, it just it it's an oh is an overwhelming part of the game now and whether it's because the pitchers are so much better whether it's because you go through relief pitchers now and you get specialists whether it's because every player has decided that he has to swing for the fences and you don't want to be Ichiro and just hit singles you want to be a power hitter because that's where the money is there's all kinds of reasons but do you share it do you is that something that that when you watch baseball that you go oh man come on put, just Put the ball in play and let's see what happens here. I think things cycle all the time. I mean, there was always talk that the reason they didn't want to acknowledge anything about um, steroids when uh, Jose was whacking them out and McGuire and Sosa and all those guys is because it was entertaining. So they wanted Big to turn a blind eye. I mean, if you whatever you got to do to hit them 475,000 yards, you go ahead and do it because it's entertaining. Remember what that TV commercial was with Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox? Chicks dig the long ball. Chicks dig, and that was the, that was baseball's own marketing campaign. Chicks dig the long ball. So everything goes in cycles. Um, you can't believe, or I can't believe. Um, others can draw their own conclusions that just the pitchers have got better because the, the athletes in all sports now are much better than they were when Babe Ruth was grabbing a hot dog at the seventh inning stretch. So the athletes are all better. Um, And then they talk about changing the mound. Remember when they lowered the mound years and years and years ago? They've always tinkered with it. But if it stays, I think the biggest problem is the games are too long still. Yeah, but a lot of that is because you're having so many strikeouts. Rather than one pitch or two pitches to get a, yeah. to get through a batter. Yeah, I think it's because guys are swinging for the fences. I think you're right. And a lot has to be attributed to the fact that you pretty much a guarantee, unless it's an absolute stellar start, you're going to see three or four pitches a game At versus least. two. Like when Dave Steve pitched for the Blue Jays, he was going into the eighth almost all the time and maybe the ninth. And when the Jays were winning the World Series, as Jack Morris, all their guns – they would go to the, they would go to the seventh, and they'd bring Ward and um, Hankin in. Hanky, so, yep. Hanky, that was yep. a, that was a guarantee, but now, holy, I mean, they're happy if they get five or six innings out of a guy. The other thing that I just don't understand, and it it, it goes to this point of strikeouts, is that we're seeing now. Anyone who watches baseball now sees the shift on all the time. If you're a left-handed power hitter, the shift is going to be over on your side of the field. You're going to have at least three infielders on your side. If you're left-handed on your side of second base on the first base side, and everyone shifted over. And now, you better swing hard because if you connect, you better either get it airborne over the infield or you better hit it so stinking hard that they can't react to it. You And... This is what I don't understand. Why don't they slap it? That's exactly what I don't understand. Or lay a bunt down. It's it's ego. I'm convinced that it's ego. But if you want if you want to shift over to take away the side of the field and you're gonna give me the whole other side of the field, I'm gonna take the whole other side of the field. And what happens when you've done that three or four or five times? They stop doing it. They stopped so what how come they can't be waiting for you and I to tell them this? 
for all the analytics people in baseball, and baseball has been taken over by analytics, by the money ball people and everything else, for all the analytics people in baseball, how is nobody in the front office saying every time they shift, just drop a bunt down? Because analytics is all about playing the numbers. It's all about playing the odds. Every single time they shift, you're going to drop a bunt the other way. And I know if you're a power hitter that they'll say, fine, we'll take the bat out of his hands. When you're hitting 700 because you're hitting bunt singles time after time after time, they will eventually stop. And you're going to get a big contract because you're, you're going to be on base and in scoring position a lot more. Do you think Cito Gaston isn't watching the game going, why don't they slap it to left field? Why don't they slap it to right? Why are they doing this? Surely there, and what this brings me to is as well, surely there is a place in the game now for a guy like an Ishiro. Now he was, you know, he was a unique talent who could slap the ball over, but a guy who can hit the ball the other way. Surely not everybody in baseball has to be a pull power hitter. Well, Rod Carew was, was going back a couple of years, but. Tony he, Gwynn. Tony Gwynn was one of the best yeah. ever at it. Just wherever they're going to, if they're going to pitch the ball outside to you, slap it through the hole on the left-hand yeah. side and take your base hit. Go with the pitch. I just don't understand how in a time of when analytics rules everything, this is the one analytic they won't accept, they won't take. And I'd love to know what the thought process behind it is to say, we will not take the sure hits that you're going to offer us. That we're not... And so yesterday... Especially when scoring is down. Well, and so yesterday in the Jays game, it's a tie game at this point. And I can't remember who got on, maybe Pilar. Anyway, somebody got, for the Jays, got a double. Sending on second base, tie game, I don't think there's anybody out. My son and I both turned to each other. Russell Martin is up. Russell Martin's having a miserable year, not hitting very well. We both said, oh, and after Martin was Randall Gritchick, who already had two home runs. So he's he's making contact, he's hitting the ball in the air and he's hitting it deep. So at the very least, you expect he can hit a deep fly ball for you. Advance the runner. There's nobody out. If you're Russell Martin, bunt the guy to third. You're, it's a tie game. Yeah. And Russell Martin's up there wailing away like it was, like he is, as you say, Mark McGuire in 1990 or whatever the year, 1998. Thinks he's Hank Aaron. Who, you wonder why scoring is down, why strikeouts are up. He was up there swinging like he had the World Series in his bat, and it was up to him. And if he didn't get it, the game was over, and the season was over. Kirk, and I, Kirk Gibson. But even you know, you watch that Kirk Gibson home run in the World Series against Oakland. Yep, the gimpy one. Watch his swing. He wasn't swinging for the fences. He wasn't a massive swing. He made great contact I was with it. Say, but he wasn't one of those. You you watch guys when they're taking the swings now, and they're finishing almost off balance because they're swinging so hard that the bat is whipping them around. He wasn't off balance. No, no, they no, they're coming out of their shoes on all of them. Now. They're exactly. And I look right. at this. Why, do, why doesn't an, but the analytics and John Gibbons? No, I mean he won the game, so you get a pass on that. But you don't need to go up by two; just go up by one. The Jays, and I'm sure most of the other teams will say, yeah, but we hit four home runs by going up there swinging hard. And so why do we, and I'm saying, yeah, but you're still 15 games out. You cannot, if I'm the Blue Jays, I'm saying we cannot compete with the New York Yankees power lineup. We don't have a Giancarlo Stanton. We don't have an Aaron Judge. Josh Donaldson's injured. We can't do that. So 
go watch Moneyball again. See what Billy Bean did with that team. He could not compete with the big teams, and so he found a different way to do it. He found a different way to compete, and it was successful. That, to me, is what baseball has become now for a lot of teams. If you can't compete with the big money and the big power hitters who make all the money, you have to find a different way to compete. And I cannot understand how no team is willing to do that right now. And I, the only thing, Don, that I can chalk it up to is ego. We don't want to look like the team that's going to nickel and dime our way to wins. We want to, we want to play the way everyone else does. Well, they've got a big salary. It's just it's all hurt. Yeah, it's all hurt. But with the guys they've got, though, and, and so again, when we're we're standing, we're sitting by the seventh inning, about three rows up from the outfield, and we're close to Rust to Randall Gritchick, the guy they got from St. Louis. He's not a big man. He's not a big man, and he's one of your power threats. And I understand now that that's what where baseball has become that you're gonna. But if the team is going to put the shift on, and if they're going to try and take away that every single time, take it every single time, yeah. and they'll stop. And then you can go back to doing what then you, you like doing. Then you can go back to doing yeah. it. You do it three or four games in a row, or even even if you go up, you don't have to be successful every time. But if they know you're trying to go the other way, they eventually will say, "Uncle, you know you're going to have to you're going to have to hit a few." What's going to happen the first time a team goes up there and lays down three straight bunts down the third baseline and has the bases loaded? And now, if you're the other team who's put the shift on and said, "We're going to take away your power," and oops, all of a sudden there's nobody out and the base is loaded, well, that doesn't seem like a very good plan. Then, no, we haven't hit a home run, but probably at some point you're going to be able to drive one of those guys in somehow. It it just it, it's a baffler to me. I don't get it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Don, the NHL draft comes up this week. The NBA draft comes up this week. We had the NFL draft a while ago. We had a Major League Baseball draft also a little while. Ago. Which one? First of all, are you a are you a draft watcher on no. TV? Do you watch any of them? Uh no. I mean, I. I if I'm not doing anything, I'll I'll put the NHL draft on in the Friday night, but it gets really boring after the first round. After once you get into about pick sixteen, and they they do it for TV now. They give them you know four or five minutes between picks in case they want to make a trade. I guess that's exciting, but it's it's made for TV. Sure, it is, and they all are. Yes, they, they all are. are. Yeah. The NFL was the first one to do it and to do it well, and NBA was second on it. Well, baseball's not much. Baseball still stinks. Yeah. And the reason, see, the because reason. They, because they draft 7,000 kids. That's true. And because 99.999% of the kids in Major League Baseball's draft you've never heard of before. Right. That's why football and basketball, I think, are so good because people watch college sports. They watch college football. They watch college basketball. So they're familiar with these guys and they can have an intelligent point of view on them. Yes. And and to a certain extent, it used to be that way more in the NHL draft when more kids come out of the CHL in Canada. But now, you know, s- some of the kids are coming out of Tier 2. There's a good Tier 2 league, Talking Hockey, in the U.S., and they're drafting Europeans. Well, what's the kid's name? Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Who plays for Winnipeg, they, uh, their first-round pick from a couple of years ago. They're big sniper. There was Austin Matthews and the Pat- Patrick Laine. When Patrick Laine was taken in the draft... Most people who are watching that draft knew of Patrick Laine, but didn't 
have a an experience in watching him play. They didn't really. They heard, oh, he's a great sniper. Oh, he's a good player. He's a big winger. They hadn't seen him. They could only go by what they'd been told, not by what they'd seen with their own eyes. Correct. What they'd read in the Hamilton Spectator and other fine publications and yeah. so on. They get highlights and you go, oh, that kid sounds pretty good. Because and now it's more acceptable. Uh, you know, you've got Forsberg, Sundin, and a lot of great players, um, Ovechkin. From Europe, so it used to be they poo pooed it. Now people don't poo poo it, but they don't. You're right; they don't know anything about it. Well, this kid who's going to be taken first overall, Darlene. It's only highlights that we've seen on uh, sports uh, shows, World Juniors. Yeah, seeing him in. Yeah, well, that's that's a small s- sample size. You know, it, it's kind of akin to saying, um, "Who's who's going to be the um, top defenseman in the league or a Calder Cup winner?" if a couple of the contenders are from the left coast. So unless you're a real fanatical fan, you're not watching all the games that start at 10 o'clock at night. So you're at a real disadvantage, and that's always been part of the the complaint about all-stars and and, uh, MVPs and top defensemen is we don't see them enough. And even... even, You don't watch, you don't stay up late enough. But Don, even with the players who play OHL or WHL, if you don't have a team... With a, if you don't have, if you're not in a city that has a team or a town that has a team, chances are you have not watched yeah, a lot of OHL hockey. So even then, your familiarity with these players is: did they play in the Canada team for the World Juniors? If they did, they're great. If, if you know, you yep. can get away. If you're an NHL team, you can get away with drafting a guy on the Canada team, and people will go, "Oh, he's great." You don't know anything about the guy, but he's great. He played for Canada. I bet you that most people here in Hamilton, if they drafted a Bulldog player, would know something about him, but not very much. Yep. Fair comment. So. And I don't think it can be any other way. I mean, I agree with you, but especially in the U.S., the basketball and the football, because all all the big teams are on every Saturday. So there is more exposure. It's easier for guys to have a, sit around and have a coffee or a beer and talk about it, because they've seen the kid play. Most, well... A very good number of players who will be taken in the NFL draft will come from places like Alabama, Arkansas, Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame, wherever. These are teams that are on TV nationally every weekend. So there is, at the very least, there is a chance you've seen them play once or twice if you're a football fan. Not so much with baseball, not at all with baseball, and not really so much with hockey. Another uh, point of obscurity would be the guys that come, the players that come out and play in the NFL or the CFL in in Hamilton. I mean, they're picking a guy and they're talking about him, but because he hasn't played likely on the top NCAA team, you may not know anything about him. He's probably a great football player, but he hasn't had the exposure of the top teams. Well, I mean, it's not a knock against the CFL, but look when the CFL has their draft. And they go to show video clips often of the players. It now looks like it's taken from someone's home video camera, then piped over Skype. I mean, it does. It's again, we're not. We're talking about players who may be playing for a Canadian university team that you've never yeah. seen. Well, that's because CIS don't have a TV deal, which is well too bad. But but it goes to the draft. I'm I'm amazed that with that being the case, that the NHL has been able to make their draft as interesting as it is. For TV viewing, considering that we don't really know a whole lot about these people, I'm, I'm amazed that they've been able to make it watchable, yeah. and which is a credit to them. NFL, again, is easy. NBA is easy. 
Major League Baseball is unwatchable. Well, the NHL draft is a big deal because there's not a whole lot going on this time of the year. Well, that too. That too. And there's a reason. I mean, they're not preempting anything all that important other than a big dart game. No, and the NBA draft, and by the way, there is Hamilton content that will be going in the first round of the NBA draft this year. Kid out of Kentucky named Shea Gilgis Alexander, who lived in Ham- lives in Hamilton, is from Hamilton, but went to the States early on in his high school life, spent most of his time in the States, then went to Kentucky. Anyway, he's going to be, most mock drafts say he's going to be the 12th or 13th player taken overall in the NBA draft. So look for that guy's name, Shea, S-H-A-I, Gilgis, G-I-L-G-E-O-U-S hyphen Alexander. Hamilton guy. You say that like I didn't follow his career. You know what? A lot of people didn't. And he was one of those guys that because he left here as a very young boy, basically in grade 10, I think, in a lot of ways fell through the cracks here at Hamilton. A lot of people don't know about him because he didn't play high school ball here. He'd have been a star, obviously. Oh, he would have dominated. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.